Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books in East Asia podcast series. My name is Nathan Hobson, and today I'm going to be talking with Laura Neitzel about her book, The Life We Longed For, Danchi Housing and the Middle Class Dream in Postwar Japan. It's out uh, 2016 from Merwin, Asia. Laura Neitzel's The Life We Longed For, Danchi Housing and the Middle Class Dream in Postwar Japan is a chronicle of the large government-sponsored housing projects called Danchi that were built during Japan's high-growth years roughly 1955 until the first oil shock in the early 1970s. Though only a minority of Japanese lived in the Danchi, they took on an outsized place in the public imagination of and aspirations for the ideal new bright life of post-war Japan. The Danchi, which, as Laura will explain, were built by the Japanese, excuse me, the Japan Housing Corporation, the JHC, to accommodate the rush of families relocating to the cities during this transformational period, were the symbol of a new democratic middle class life freed from the quote unquote feudal past, a great social and architectural experiment and the source of enormous social cathexis. Drawing on a wide range of sources from government white papers to popular women's magazines and paying close attention to the Danchi as an everyday revolution of the everyday to both the positive and negative views uh, in society uh, of the Danchi and to their relationship to contemporaneous social imaginaries of the democratic capitalist affluence around the world. Um, Neitzel paints a really clear and concise portrait of the Danchi as aspiration, um, but also paradoxically as a kind of nostalgia, a longed for life that never really was. Um, The book provides a clear and sensitive look at Danchi as modern design and design for modernity, as a fantasy of middle-class life and a middle-class fantasy, warts and all. Hello, my name is Nathan Hobson, and welcome to the New Books in East Asia podcast series. Uh, Today, we have with us Laura Neitzel, and we're going to be discussing her book, The Life We Longed For, Danchi Housing, and the Middle Class Dream in Post-War Japan. Uh, Laura, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Nathan. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. Great. Um, so we're going to just start off with a, a quick question about um, how you got to this project, because, you know, I personally, um, I have this feeling like uh, Danchi are one of those things that are so obvious that they're almost kind of transparent and people, you know, it's such a it's, it's such an obviously important subject, but it's so easily overlooked. So I'm really fascinated to hear how you got interested in this project and like how you got through it. Also, a little bit about um, who you are, where you're from, where you went to school. Sure. Um, Well, so I can start with the second part. Um, I'm currently the academic director at the Committee on Global Thought and a lecturer in history at at Columbia University. And I also did my PhD studies at Columbia. Um, I came to this project um, as my dissertation project out of an interest in the early post-war period and really a kind of large question about how Japan began to create new meanings after defeat, um, brought meaning to everyday life. And so I became really interested in less the occupation period than the period just after that and on the cusp of high-speed growth. 
and the ways within, especially within popular culture, people were beginning to articulate new visions for a future and how even concepts of the past were either woven within that or kind of left behind. And I took into my research a very broad concept that there was a kind of Americanization of everyday life that was going on um, and that through new consumption um, and new new family relations that people were finding uh, n- different kinds of meaning um, in life. And everywhere I turned, because it's a very kind of vague um, thing to begin researching, I began to find Danchi. And, and I actually started my research with an investigation of the Danchi that uh, began to be built by the Japan Housing Corporation in 1955 and very quickly kind of captured the the imagination um, of people in Japan. You could see them in magazines, women's magazines, and um, in all sorts of places, people looking at the Danchi, talking about the Danchi as a kind of very modern, cutting-edge modern lifestyle. So because I had started with such a broad and vague concept of what I wanted to do, the Danchi were something quite literally concrete. <laughs> so <laughs> I, be- I began my investigations there, and I realized that through this kind of very concrete um, real site, I was able to investigate all sorts of questions about um, both how uh, people were re-envisioning middle-class life, um, but also how they were kind of seeing um, this new post-war life in relationship to to wartime um, and the early post-war. So, as I began the research, I realized that, wow, this could actually be the project. And so I ended up um, looking at the Danchi from lots of different perspectives, from the perspective of, of housing history, from the perspective of uh, city planning, from the perspective of popular culture. Um, you know, even my favorite part of the project was looking at novels and and films and short stories that were written about the Danchi or situated in the Danchi uh, to really think about the many meanings um, of the Danchi in, in post-war Japan. Okay, great. Yeah. And that's really interesting. And I guess um, I was listening and, and I, I felt like we've uh, we've done one of those horrible things uh, and it's it's entirely my fault to our to our listeners where we've been throwing around this word danchi. Um, and I suppose we have uh, you know a number of people listening to the podcast now who are wondering what the heck are danchi. So I guess we yes. should sort of jump back to that question um, and I should have asked that first. So we've been talking about danchi. Um, can you tell us a little bit about um, what they are and in in the bigger sense sort of like I know your book is about what they mean and we'll get to that in a second mm-hmm. but just physically what were the danchi? What they are. So they are the most basic answer is that they are large apartment style housing complexes and you're absolutely right there ubiquitous on the landscape in Japan. Um, You know, you pass them on the trains, you pass them on the streets, your friends live in them, you might have lived in one. Um, They're kind of everywhere. And the the term danchi is a kind of generic term now to refer to that style of housing. Uh, But in fact, it was the Japan Housing Corporation in the the mid-1950s that kind of popularized this term and kind of, I argue, danchi-ized the danchi Mm -hmm. or brought kind of meaning to the concept of danchi. And the Japan Housing Corporation was a public corporation that was formed in 1955 and mandated to increase housing stock. And so um, their real purpose was to um, 
be a solution to what was a continuing housing crisis coming out of, of World War II. Um, and like much of the world, um, where this was kind of the high point in, in mass social housing in many parts of the world, it was seen as a quick and relatively cheap uh, way to provide housing in the midst of, of you know, vast shortages um, in any part of the world that was impacted by the war directly and even indirectly, you know, here in the United States as well, um, we had a huge housing shortage coming out of World War II. You know, in the case of Japan, over half of the homes in urban areas and a fifth of them nationwide were lost in the war. Uh, new housing construction halted during the war. And then after the war, you had millions being repatriated from the battlefields and from the empire. So then in 1945, Japan had a shortage of 4.2 million housing units. And even 10 years later, when the Japan Housing Corporation was, was founded, um, it had not been really ameliorated that much. And part of that was due to then economic growth where people were starting to really um, move into the cities in larger and larger numbers. So in 1955, mm -hmm. there was still a shortage of 3 million housing units. So, you know, the basic answer is that it's apartment-style housing um, as a solution. But then what makes the Danchi so interesting is that they were really quite innovative for their time. Uh, they were the first to introduce the DK configuration. And again, uh, those folks who are familiar with, with Japanese housing or have lived in Japanese housing know right away what that is. DK stands for dining kitchen. And it's the kind of shorthand for articulating spatial layouts, especially for rental housing or for even some for condominiums in some cases, 1DK, 2DK, 1LDK, if you want to put a living room in there. And this kind of terminology originated with the Danchi. Uh, they were the first to put in mass-produced stainless steel sinks in the kitchens, which are to this day quite you know, common. Um, and that was seen as really modern and made, you know, the, the, the kitchen a kind of very hygienic, modern seeming space. Um, they were the first to really on a mass scale have baths within an apartment unit and Western style toilets. And so they were really quite appealing to people in the mid fifties, especially at a time, you know, I've had many people say to me, you know, we have this narrative of the 50s as uh, the, the post-war is finally over, that saying or that, you know, phrase that came out of a famous white paper, government white paper in 1955, mohaya sengo dewanai, or sengo, yes, um, that mohaya, the post-war is finally over. Um, mm. But but in fact, you'll have people, you know, I had many people saying to me who lived through those years, sengo was not over. I mean, it, people's living conditions were still quite dire. Um, there was still a, a true housing crisis in the, even in the 1950s. So the Danchi were seen not only as a solution, but a very kind of um, modern cutting edge one, and therefore people's longing to live um, in the Danchi. Yeah, thank you so much. And, and that, that actually brings me uh, really uh, quite nicely into the next question that I had. Um, you know, your, your title... Um, is the life we longed for, and you and and you just brought up this question of longing. Um, I wonder if you could uh, f uh, unpack that a little bit for us. So, like, where did the title come from, and what is this this longing that you're talking about? Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. It took me a really long time to come to this title, and mm. then once I settled, I mean, this was not the title of my dissertation, and mm. it took me a long time to get to it, and then. Um, 
once I decided that this was the title, it really clicked for me and, and it had been sitting, you know, in front of me all the time. Because this phrase, the life we longed for, or in Japanese, akogareta seikatsu, um, is is really one of the reasons why I became so intrigued with the Danchi, because whenever I would read about the Danchi, really starting from the 50s on, but even today when you read about the Danchi, it's kind of the Danchi, it was the life we longed for. Uh, or when you speak to people and I'd say, oh, I'm researching the Danchi, they'd say, oh, that was the life we longed for. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was this phrase, I was really intrigued by that, you know, like, what does this mean? And even... Um, you know, in the in the 1990s and the early 2000s, people are saying, "Oh, that was the life we longed for," but in fact, it, mm. it so you know people's lives by the time you get you know to the 1990s had so kind of surpassed the lifestyle and the living standards of the Danchi. So it really intrigued mm -hmm. me this phrase, um, and then it really clicked for me as a title when I began to. Um, try to think about the Danchi within a more globalized context and really realize that, A, the story of mass housing, um, but also the story of kind of middle-class dreams being rearticulated and enacted in different ways after World War II, especially with, um, with mass consumption becoming um, more common in different parts of the world, that the life we longed for was not just a Japanese phenomenon, um, mm -hmm. that the life that people in Japan long longed for was in many ways the life my parents longed for as they had emerged both from the experience of the Great Depression and World War II, you know, a, a comfortable home, a place to raise children, um, in the case of the United States, you know, life in the suburbs and a, a life filled with all of these, you know, the television and all of these um, appliances that made your daily life easier. So in, that's when it clicked for me, because it's not just the life we long for as a translation of Akogareta Seikatsu, but it was the life, it, it's a kind of statement, I think, that very much is of the moment that the Japanese call high-speed economic growth, but I think that's a global high-speed economic growth between the 50s and the 70s and came with a lot of new visions of what daily life should look like. Yeah, and I want to stick with this uh, question of longing just a little bit more um, because you've also brought up the very sort of um, innovative nature of the Dante, and, and, and in your book you uh, you have uh, you talk about nostalgia, right? This idea of the akogareta seikatsu, the you know, the life that we longed for. Um, but you also, uh, and in, in particular, you bring in Svetlana Boim's ideas about nostalgia. Mm -hmm. um, but you also have um, Harry Harutunian talking about uh, this idea of you know being filled with the future, right? And you have um, the dancer both filled with the future and at the same time an object of nostalgia, even almost in their own time. Um, and I thought that was really interesting. I wonder if, if you could say a little bit more about that about this sort of um, the fact that they're um, an aspiration um, and sort of the temporality of that aspiration. I think that that's really the key. And I, it really occurred to me recently that although I started out intrigued with this Danchi space and especially the ways that architects were trying to, in a way, solve these social problems through space, um, that was where I started, that where I ended up, and of course that never goes away and you can't separate that from temporality, but where I ended up was with being very, very... Um, interested in time and, and temporality and, and just the idea of a future. 
um, and a feeling of futurity, if you want to call it that, mm -hmm. um, the Heratunian's idea of, of being filled with the future. So that, um, and that's, I think, what I was trying to capture about Japan at this moment of high-speed economic growth. It was, it was a feeling that there is a future and that it's certainly better than the past, <laughs> you know, the wartime past and, right. and the time of recovery. And so it was a kind of hopefulness about what was possible. And it became very, a kind of well-defined um, idea of what a middle-class life should look like. And there's so much wonderful work on this. Um, but, you know, that she wanted to go to a good university, you wanted to, you know, you wanted to provide um, good education for your children so they could go to a good university so that they could get the good job, you know, the whole salaryman life, um, mm -hmm. which which really, you know, and I kind of lived through the tail end of that middle class dream, I think, um, living in Japan in the 1980s and things, it kind of felt like what Japan was to the world as well, um, but that it was very much of a very particular moment. Um, and I think that this is very much in keeping with even a lot of the conversations we're having here in the United States right now about, um, you know, the middle class dream. Is my life going to be better than my parents' life. Um, that's always been the kind of middle-class dream here in the United States, one of the ways that we define it. And that's seeming less likely um, for many people these right. days. So right. that, you know, this the Danchi were of this time um, and they kind of capture that, you know, that feeling. So that the nostalgia that we have going on about the Danchi in Japan today, uh, which I tried to write a little bit about in the last chapter of the book, um, is not nostalgia for the brand new washing machine or whatever, but that nostalgia. The nostalgia is for that feeling of, of, of development and of a future, of, of a tomorrow that's better than today. Yeah, I think that was uh, one of the things that really struck me about the book was this connection between um, the 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 future. The, what did you call that? The futurity was it um, of the sort of idea of the the, the high growth era and the sort of Danchi as a particularly um, you know a product particularly of that era. Um, one thing that you uh, just brought up in your answer there was this idea of the the sort of ideal um, Sarariman, uh, you know, uh, white collar father, uh, you know, um, professional housewife, mother, two kids who are both, you know, uh, doing well in school, that sort of um, that vision of a particular kind of um, consumeristic uh, bright life that was part of the vision of the, the high growth era. Um, but one thing that sort of struck me in the book is um, you were talking about the, the gendering of the Danchi and in particular about the uh, the sort of spaces that were carved out for individual um, family members, right? So that in, in a way, like the Sarariman, we talk about the Sarariman family, and yet the Danchi is almost a place where there's no place for the Sarariman himself. Um, and this was sort of really interesting to me. So I wonder if you could talk about the sort of uh, the gendered aspect of the Danchi and, and like how the, the family unit was uh, conceived of and worked within that those structures. Well, for me, that, you know, the discussion really needs to start with with what I have in my first chapter, mm -hmm. which was the early post-war and a lot of the ideas that um, architects were exchanging about living space. And I kind of call this the kind of pre-intellectual history of, of the Danchi, because obviously that 
space gets designed later. But um, and and when you had asked me before why I became interested in this project, this was another reason. Um, you know, I'm not an architectural historian. At so I didn't have a background in architecture, but I was very intrigued as I started to look at, you know, different discourses about living space that, you know, early post-war architects, many of them were debating the very same things that other, you know, intellectuals were debating, you know, broadly about women's rights, about, you know, the need to change the family or democratize the family, the need to kind of rid Japan of, quote, feudal elements, you know, these kind of shards of the past still lodged in the present. And it was so intriguing to me to then see architects having these very same debates, but then saying, but we can fix this with space. Um, and so, you know, one example, of course, is that, you know, elevating the women with, within the home and also uh, really kind of cha challenging the, the concept of the family system and the uh, kind of patriarchal family system. And so architects and other critics were quite critical of wide open Japanese spaces with, you know, multi-generation families where then the family patriarch would have this kind of visual, you know, um, surveillance capability of visual surveillance of the family. Right. Um, and so that what we needed were people to, in order to foster um, individual individuality as everyone needs their own room. Um, and then you also need to have shared living spaces where you can kind of practice democracy at the level of the family. Mm -hmm. And you also needed to kind of elevate the position of the woman by making spaces that were, um, you know, always traditionally associated with the woman, particularly the kitchen, to make it a clean, bright space and a place where the family gathers, not just pl a place where the woman cooks and then serves the family in a different room, but where the family gathers. And so these were a lot of the ideas that were actually behind um, the you know, design of the Danchi. Um, and so, and, and the idea was that these were going to be really kind of revolutionary ideas. And, um, and so then to me, it's really quite interesting how later, once this takes built form, um, that then, um, there's this kind of real critique that, that, that now the women are the queen of the Danchi. And, and remember a lot of this is at the level of discourse and social mm -hmm. critique, right? Um, and I'm sure that a lot of men, um, surely enjoyed their Danchi space as much as the women did, but, this kind of stereotype of all of the men heading off to work in their identical suits and all the women with their little house dresses waving them off and then the men you know coming home late at night after going out with the other salarymen and and you know going to the wrong apartment because they all are identical you know mm -hmm. all of these and actually that's the kind of trope that you see around the world of that kind of cookie cutter mass-produced middle-class life in suburbia um, you see that um, that kind of critique in Japan as well. Um, so yes, the idea that women, and, and especially, and there was some truth to this, right? Because the danchi were being built in the suburbs. And, you know, if you have the professional housewife, she was there kind of stuck at home and um, the workplace was far away. And so the husband gets home late at night. And um, so there become these kind of feminized realms and then this, idea that the that the husband doesn't have a space in the home yeah and I, i'm glad you you brought up chapter one right which is called uh the revolution of everyday life and i thought that was a really great way to you know start off with this idea of sort of redesigning um life you know in, in a uh in a very as you said quite literally concrete sense and also you know this idea that we can 
um, you know, fix what's wrong with uh, the old feudal Japan. Um, and this idea of sort of, you know, d- d- democracy at the level of building, I thought was a really uh, powerful way to get us into the book. Um, but you've started to talk well, a little could bit. I just, oh, sorry, could yes, I just please. add something to that real quickly? Because um, I think the other piece of it is then, um, and probably the more profound piece in the long run was the idea that, um, that coming out of the war that, you know, people's daily lives had been devastated and here was an opportunity for people to really rebuild their everyday lives and, and uh, their private lives. Um, Mm -hmm. and with this, uh, and really, um, a critique of an idea that the state had intruded on the realm of everyday life, um, throughout the war and before actually from Meiji on. Um, and so that this was a real moment of potentially a kind of radical reconfiguration, not just of the home and relationships within the home, but just what everyday life means. And, um, so a true revolution in everyday life, not a revolution in everyday life that, in the way that we're going to see the same phrased um, phrase used in the 1960s to refer to, you know, the washing machine and the rice cooker and all of those appliances creating mm-hmm. a revolution, a kind of consumptionist revolution of, in everyday life. The original kind of concept was as a, a potential for a radical transformation. Yeah, I, uh, and thank you for uh, clarifying that. Um, and, and this actually brings me to uh, another question I wanted to ask, which is that, um, you know, we've talked about the Danchi being the product of a particular time, which is this era of high growth. And and as many people know about Japan, um, that era of high growth is basically, you know, depending on how you look at it, it's from roughly 1955 until the first oil shock in the early 70s. Um, but by the end of that period already, you were seeing, and you've alluded to some of this already, um, some very uh, some significant backlash against the Danchi um, as these um, you know very disruptive forces. Uh, and you have a sort of uh, you know, and, and you've just mentioned consumption as one aspect of um, sort of what was wrong with Danchi that there were cultural critics uh, who felt like it was part of this uh, movement to create a you know uh, to sort of create a consumer uh, lifestyle based on privacy, you know, these questions of privacy that that were somehow tearing apart the fabric of what was good about, you know, quote unquote, traditional Japan. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about that. Well, I think that some of those critiques were um, of the moment as well, so Mm -hmm. that um, they're not all just happening, bursting out in the 70s. But I do think the 70s are a kind of a moment of reassessment, especially, um, it, with the oil shocks of the 70s and and other things and people beginning to really assess with pollution and other issues um, the very high cost paid for um, for the decade and a half of, of high-speed growth um, so and of course and there were it's something very real here in terms of um, housing being an hour an hour and a half two hours from a workplace um, land prices rising, making housing and, and of course, you know, homes, not just, you know, apartment housing. We're talking about that, but, you know, the apartment housing was supposed to be a step toward owning a home, right? So, you know, the expense of that um, and the, the toll on daily life that that took in order to achieve what was the actual real middle-class dream, which was that home ownership, um, and also a feeling like that original concept of, of 
a revolution in everyday life had been betrayed by this other idea of revolution in everyday life that, you know, we're just kind of filled with houses filled with appliances, but how does this change anything? And in fact, um, we might not be sacrificing our lives for the state anymore, but now in order to maintain this lifestyle, we're sacrificing our lives to a corporation. Um, so there is a kind of multi-layered critique of um, housing, lifestyle, you know, the rabbit hutch, uh, but also the meanings of everyday life and a kind of disappointment with um, with how things have turned out by the time we get to the 70s. And I remember, you know, when I first went to Japan in the 70s, people would say to me all the time, like, yes, our country is rich, but we are poor. You know, look at our ho little house, you know. Yeah. Um, and so this was very much internalized by people, this idea that their living standards were not uh, where they should be. Yeah, this is uh, actually particularly poignant for me as I'm, I'm for the first time in my life, uh, just recently bought a house and it's here in Japan. Um, and congratulations. I'm from, yeah, thank you. I'm moving from an apartment to a house that's actually smaller than the apartment. Uh, if very you interesting. That. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, but, you know, one of the things I was thinking about, you know, I'm originally from uh, Pennsylvania and uh I have a, a friend of mine who's from Levittown, um, yes. and we've we've talked about you know uh, his experience in Levittown, and I've read up a little bit about that. And I I wonder I, I'm not sure it's entirely fair uh, to compare the Danchi to Levittown, both in terms of their sort of uh, suburban aspirational post-war um, you know model uh, uh, sort of aspirational lifestyle. Um, but it occurred to me that that was at least a useful way for me to get my head around what you were talking about. What do you think about? that. And it's a very useful way to communicate this project to others, especially mm -hmm. people in the United States. Yes. Um, you know, in many ways they were different. I mean, Danchi housing, this was apartment housing. It was rental housing. And right. again, it was meant to be a kind of temporary step to home ownership, although a lot of mm -hmm. people live a whole life in the Danchi, but that was kind of the intention. Um, and, you know, Love it, hit town. Those were little freestanding houses, but in terms of the way that Levittown captured American social imaginary and became the kind of um, synonym for a kind of mass-produced middle-class life, uh, I think that there are lots of comparisons to be made. And it so it is a very useful way for me to kind of communicate um, my project, but also, I mean, I think that it's another kind of illustration of of these phenomena, you know, these types of housing um, and these types of lifestyles that the housing represented being really something that was happening in a lot of places at the same time. Mm -hmm. We've we've taken up a, a quite a bit of your time, and I just wanted to uh, sort of at the end here transition. I had a, a quick question for you. Um, you said at the outset that you are the academic director for the Committee on Global Thought at Columbia. Could you tell tell us a little bit about what it is that you're doing? Uh, what what does that job entail? Sure. Uh, well, the Committee on Global Thought um, is a really wonderful um, enterprise at Columbia. Um, it's a it's a committee, actually, of faculty members uh, drawn from across the university who um, have been tasked by the president of the university with really thinking about um, not only the role of the university in the 21st century, but how we even create knowledge or try to understand our complicated and interconnected world. Um, and, you know, whether 
you know, our current disciplinary boundaries, et cetera, and how, how those work with trying to conceptualize connection and, and where our world is today. And so this group that's drawn from across the university, um, you know, tackles questions together from the perspective of science, from history, from, you know, social science. Uh, and so we, we have a lot of research projects um, that we sponsor, but we also have a master's program in global thought which is growing. Um, we're in our fourth year. And we're also developing undergraduate curriculum, uh, which is one of what actually one of my main jobs is developing undergraduate cur- curriculum in global thought um, for the Committee on Global Thought. Um, so it's a really interesting place to be. And it's very much suited to my own, um, my own interests, which are global. Um, and which are, and I tried to achieve this at least a little bit in this book mm-hmm. to try and really think about the ways in which this story is one that is bigger than Japan and um, connected to sets of processes that were, were if not global, at least um, uh, held in common by a lot of the the developed nations in the world in the early years after World War II. Well, that sounds like a really great place to work. I'm a little jealous. Um, well, thank you so much, Laura. I really appreciate it. Come visit uh, us. Yeah, I, well, anytime. I would, I would love to. Sure. Um, yeah, thank you so much for spending some time with us today and for talking about your book. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. It was my pleasure. Thank you. <laughs>